0: Welcome to IBD Drive Time. I'm Dr. David Rubin, a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, where I also direct the section of gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition, and my specialty is inflammatory bowel disease. Today, I'm delighted to host a conversation about sex and inflammatory bowel disease. I'd like to introduce our two expert contributors, both Dr. Elise Bedell and Dr. Sarah Makarig, are at the University of Chicago with me and have specific expertise and interest in this uh, area. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Uh, Dr. Elise Bedell is a gastropsychologist and sex therapist. She's also an assistant professor at the University of Chicago in the Department of Psychiatry with a secondary appointment in the section of gastroenterology in the Department of Medicine. She works with our patients who have inflammatory bowel disease as well as other digestive diseases and has a variety of different approaches of reducing GI symptoms using behavioral strategies and helping patients develop strategies for coping with their illness. Her PhD is in clinical psychology, and she focused in her thesis on the cognitive factors that surround patients who have irritable bowel syndrome. So, Elise, we're delighted to have your expertise here and to have you help us with some of this.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And Dr. Sarah Mackerig is also at the University of Chicago she's a pelvic floor physical therapist who's board certified in orthopedics and women's health. She has a clinical doctorate in physical therapy, but she also works specifically within our pelvic health program at the University of Chicago, and she's been doing this for almost 11 years now so welcome Sarah we're delighted you're here with us as well.
2: Thank you so much.
0: So this topic is one that I think we don't talk enough about, and it is something that is pervasive in patients with IBD, and there are a variety of reasons that we haven't gotten to discuss this further, and in the ever-expanding approach to taking care of people with IBD and thinking about all the challenges they face, understanding their sexual function and their ability to be intimate with others is something that uh, I'm really pleased that we're talking about today and hoping that all the listeners will take away some very important pearls and change their practice. So let me start by just asking you, Elise, how common is sexual dysfunction in inflammatory bowel disease?
1: As a lot of these things are, the rates vary widely, um, but based on some of the most recent research um, in women with IBD, rates of sexual dysfunction range from only as low as 50%, up to almost 100%, 97% based on one recent study just out a few years ago. And if we compare that to healthy controls, um, those would be at about 20 to 30% among women um, without IBD, healthy controls. In men um, with IBD, those rates range from 14 to 40%. So still a lot, but a lot lower than women. And we can compare that to a figure of 7% among male healthy controls.
0: So what exactly is sexual dysfunction? How is it defined? How do people discuss it in clinic? What are they actually talking about?
1: Yeah, so it's a great question. And it's probably some other reason why the rates vary widely. Um, So sexual dysfunction, um, technically speaking, um, refers to a disruption at any point in the human sexual response cycle. Um, So that includes interest in sexual activity um, or desire, it includes arousal, Um, so this could include difficulty with lubrication, difficulty um, with erection, Um, it also includes difficulty um, achieving an orgasm, and in addition to those actual components of the sexual response cycle that could be disrupted, pain is actually a separate component. Um, so, if any one of those four factors related to desire, arousal, orgasm, or and or pain, if any of those things are impacted, um, those would uh, those would lead to um, to us to a sexual dysfunction. Um, that being said, you could consider something like desire is really common. So, even among a general population, there are lots of factors that can reduce a person's libido. Um, And so that uh, would be the reason why some of those rates might be so high versus, um, you know, if somebody has pain as well as low desire, as well as arousal, that's going to probably lead to some of those lower rates once we get to more complex sexual dysfunction.
0: Does it include some of the things that we hear about uh, related to Self identity or fear of being incontinent during interactions? Because uh, I'm not sure if that falls under those categories you described, but we know that this also contributes to how people can be intimate or have those types of relations.
1: Absolutely. So I think it's, um, it's such a good point that I think when we hear about the definition of sexual function or we think about the types of disorders that fall into that, it sounds so physiological. And of course, many of those symptoms are very physiological in nature, um, but actually some of the most common causes of sexual dysfunction are psychological and social in nature. So with the example that you identified, a fear of incontinence, it's the fear of incontinence that's actually making a change in the brain and the body that is inhibiting the body's ability to respond sexually. So it's actually disrupting the body's natural sexual response cycle. So I'd say that those types of psychosocial factors are integral um, to the develop of development of sexual dysfunction, but you might not know the causes until you start to dig into it more.
0: Sure. I'm sure the the folks listening are just a- astonished by the number of people who are actually affected by this. Mm-hmm. It's not just the folks who have the active disease and who are sick, but people who have IBD even when they're in remission who continue to have some of these challenges. Absolutely. So Sarah, why don't you help us understand a bit more of about why some of this happens? Uh, what are the physiologic causes and contributors to some of the challenges that Elise identified?
2: Yeah, I think Elise did a great job painting the picture for, you know, some of the psychological component. And if you think of patients who um, are in a lot of pain, they're in a lot of discomfort and going on that line of things. What happens at least from a muscular perspective is those muscles tend to be very guarded. You know, if if there's instances of constipation, if there's instances of fear of diarrhea or any leakage, those muscles are going to be contracted and in this, you know, semi-protective state. So thinking from that perspective, when you have all that muscle guarding and, thinking of penetrative sex, when those muscles are super tense and uh, in that guarded state, that can be very painful for a lot of people to experience penetration. And then, you know, to add on with the libido aspect too, when the libido is down, that anticipation of pain sort of feeds into this vicious cycle of, well, I'm afraid of this, or I'm afraid of pain, or I'm afraid of leakage. And then that contributes even more so to the tightness of the pelvic muscles. And that can be, you know, like I said, this vicious cycle that's hard to find that break in until we start these different forms of therapy, whether it's both physical therapy and mental health therapy, to try to start recognizing and breaking some of that cycle to then get on this path of maintenance, essentially.
0: And I'd like to dispel the myth that men don't have pelvic floor problems. Um, They certainly do. Can you comment briefly on the relative prevalence of that compared to women where we think about it a little bit more often?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the common way that it more presents in men is either erectile function um, and pain with some form of either ejaculation um, or pain after orgasm as well. And these can be presented in a variety of different spaces, whether it's rectally or testicular or penile or even abdominally afterwards. And um, generally, I think there's just a lot of underreporting or um, either like shame around this and it's not being asked by providers. And that's partially why I think a lot of this gets underreported in males as well. Um, But from a mechanism perspective, it's very similar to that of women of these very, very tight muscles for proper, from a muscular perspective, for proper sexual function, you need full relaxation of your muscles and be able to fully contract. So when you have the inability to do that, and those muscles are just tense all the time, that's where this can lead to some of these different areas of dysfunction.
0: That's a perfect lead into my next question, which is uh, how do we screen for sexual dysfunction in clinic? You know, I know that the people listening to this are busy and they also understand, even if they're experts in taking care of people with IBD, how complex that can be. If a patient's sick and they're having GI driven symptoms, we focus on that a lot of our time, adding in all the other health maintenance and Uh, Extraintestinal problems that we're supposed to be looking for and have enough time to screen for. Uh, Now we're talking about sexual dysfunction, which is underappreciated. How do we possibly know how to ask, how to screen, and what to do? So maybe at least, what should we be saying? What's the best way to approach this? Is it part of just a review of systems, or should it be something uh, more directed? Or are there tools we can use?
1: probably all of the above um, would be the correct answer. Um, But maybe the most practical answer is pick one and try to make it work and stick with it. Um, I think it can be so um, tempting and in a research perspective, um, it can be so so wonderful to use um, standardized questionnaires. But I think um, if the real interest is in uh, making this practical and um, um, easy to pick up on, easy to do in the clinic, I would say the clinical interview is our most powerful tool And that can be one question. Tell me about your sexual functioning recently. And maybe a follow-up could be, how has it, or has it not been impacted by your IBD? Um, And so I really think it it can be as simple as that. And one thing I'll add is I've I've really appreciated um, Dr. Rubin, your use of the term sex and sexual functioning um, throughout our conversation so far. And I think that that's something that I really do want people to take away is Call it what it is. We're not talking. Intimacy is a broad term. Intimacy is an important term, but intimacy means a lot of things. So, if we are really asking about sexual functioning, don't call it intimacy. Ask about sexual functioning. Um, and we really, as providers, um, need to be the ones to take the lead on taking the stigma and the shame out of these questions. Um, Most patients do want to have these conversations with their gastroenterologist and with other members of the health team. We know this through research. And so certainly you could encounter a patient that's uncomfortable talking about it. But by and large, if you ask the question and demonstrate confidence and appropriateness in asking that, patients will respond well to it. Um, So I think just asking about how, how sexual functioning has been Um, getting an answer, and then I think we'll certainly talk a little bit more about beyond that, um, what you might do. Um, To comment a little bit, if there are folks that would be interested in more systematic screening, um, I would be happy to, in the transcript, share a couple of recommendations for that Um, what there are two um, that are specific um, um, in IBD to sexual functioning, one for females and one for males. Um, And then there is a validated one item screening questionnaire that is pretty nice. So if anyone has an interest in implementing it, I'll, I'll I'll include a link to that as well.
0: That'd be terrific. And obviously there are some sensitivities here. For example, uh, perhaps having uh, a partner or someone else who's in the room step out, maybe when the patient's um, changing or having an exam with your chaperone present is when you can ask the question. Um, don't ask the question while you're actually examining the perianal area, but rather separate the physical exam from the question themselves uh, so that the patient feels like there isn't a violation of their physical space while you're exploring this. And there are some things that I think we need to learn a bit more about.
1: Such great points.
0: Then after somebody indicates that they are having some challenges or that they feel like their uh, sexual function isn't where they want it to be, um, what do we do to probe further or to ask additional detailed questions? And how do we refer them to the next step in management? So Sarah, can you help us with that?
2: Yeah, sure. I think especially as long as they're comfortable, as you had mentioned before talking about things, um, I think some basic questions or follow-up questions is when are you having pain or at what phase are you having issues with your sexual function? Um, Because for some people it might be, well, I don't feel like I'm in the mood for it. So that can help lead you down one clinical pathway, or I'm having a lot of pain and that can lead you down another clinical pathway. So really finding out what aspect is, are they feeling that there's dysfunction? Um, And then the other follow-up question too, is like how, what is your relationship like with your current partner? I think that's also important to know like what their support system is like. So that way you know what the expectations are. Um, Cause sometimes If partners, if they don't feel like they can talk about it openly with their partner, that's huge and definitely a way to try to pull in some support system for them. But if they have a very helpful, supportive partner who's not pressuring them, um, you know, that can also make their path to recovery a lot easier as well. Um, But that's usually where I try to dive in of like trying to figure out what phase are they having their dysfunction in, Um, And that can then lead to more and more questions and more discussion to then be able to determine, okay, yes, this person absolutely needs some sort of mental health therapy. Let's get them set up with that. Or let's get them aligned with um, physical therapy because they're having a lot of muscle pain, being collaborative with pain management or what have you. But just trying to find what resources they could possibly need.
0: That's a great lead into to the next question, which is how is this treated? And maybe, Elise, you can take us through some of these uh, approaches, as well as tell us when it's appropriate to refer a patient in whom you've identified these challenges to a sex therapist.
1: Absolutely. So I think the first thing to keep in mind, both, um, you know, for the provider and for the patient is that these issues really are very treatable. Thankfully, Um, there are a lot of things that we work with that um, can be a little bit more challenging to instill hope. And thankfully, sexual function is something that can really be well addressed with the right resources so I think um, what happens next, you know, kind of um, following up on some of Sarah's comments, where it, it, it depends a little bit on the comfort level of the physician, in this case of the gastroenterologist. Um, you know, from my perspective, I would say that particularly, you know, when we're talking about uh, male patients, perhaps who have developed erectile dysfunction that seems to have really closely um, piggybacked on a recent surgery or um, you know, following a recent flare, as long as you as a physician um, feel that a PD-5 inhibitor would be safe for that patient, um, that could be okay for you to start. Um, uh, but I would say, in many cases, it is completely fine to rely on um, our other physician colleagues. So a referral to urology or gynecology could be appropriate, depending on what primary care doctor the patient has. They may be comfortable doing some additional screen, screening and management. Uh, but I would say, actually, in in most cases, um, a patient could be could be recommended to see a sex therapist, and I would say. Um, That's largely because um, as a sex therapist, our training is really to take that bird's eye view in understanding the various, um, the the multifactorial um, aspects of sexual dysfunction. And so we oftentimes actually can be a pretty good um, assessment to help route to the different pathways if the patient hasn't had them already. So certainly not that we're gonna be addressing of um, the medical issues or the physiological issues, but we do have some pretty good training and being able to identify what might be a next, a good next step for the patient. Um, and, and I would say at a bare minimum, um, you know, when having the discussion with what's, uh, with the patient about where they might go next in terms of screening or management for sexual dysfunction, you know, do your best to also just include a little bit about how, no matter what, what the primary cause is, psychological and social factors play a role, right? And so that the patient can at least mull over what their stress level is, what their anxiety is, what their, what their current body image is, and to be able to maybe prepare um, and to increase some readiness that they might need to talk to someone that isn't a medical provider. And, and I think um, that's important because most people Um, Men or women, regardless of what the primary source of their problem is, really benefit from at least a few sessions with a sex therapist to understand that psychosocial component to their sexual functioning.
0: You mentioned the medical provider. I'll just add that and remind everyone that these days, our goal is to try to achieve disease control, not just symptom improvement. And part of communicating to patients when they achieve deep remission is what comes with that, which is a favorable prognosis, at least for the next six months or a year, that their disease will stay under control. So you can provide some more certainty in the medical management of their disease to provide them with more comfort. One of the things patients most struggle with is the uncertainty or the unpredictability of when they're going to relapse or have a problem, and I'm sure that contributes in some ways. Having said all that, The patient in deep remission is someone, as we've already mentioned, who can still have sexual dysfunction. And you shouldn't think that because you fix one problem, the other one's gone away. So it's really important to continue this dialogue. Um, Sarah, I might ask you to help us know when should people be referring to see a pelvic floor physical therapist? I know that this is an underappreciated problem in our patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Sometimes it's acquired because they've spent so much time trying to hold uh, things in when they were fearful of having incontinence. And other times they uh, have these challenges that are from other problems like surgery. Um, can you help us know when they should be sending to you or have additional testing?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I think you touched on a lot of that too, of um, especially those who are both on either the extreme where they mix between both constipation and diarrhea, or they have that history of um, either some sort of bowel obstructions or just history of that constipation. Um, sometimes, if they've had testing um, like anal rectal manometry, and if things if signs are abnormal sometimes we can work on reteaching these patients how to properly use their pelvic floor muscle muscles to evacuate. Um, we can also try teaching them some lifestyle modifications as well, but they're usually getting a lot of that from, the, from their gastroenterologist and even from nutritionists as well. Um, but that's a lot of times where we're retraining those pelvic floor muscles if it seems like they just don't know what they're doing or even upon their digital rectal exam, if their muscles are super guarded, really, really tense um, and even painful, that can also be an indication as well. If they just don't know how to perform a Kegel or a pelvic floor muscle contraction, if they have no idea how to bear down and push and they're just, they're, their muscles don't know what they're doing or they're squeezing when you're telling them to push or vice versa, a lot of that is just leads into what we call dyssynergic defecation. And we can try to retrain some of that But even after surgeries, um, sometimes if they're, if they have really, really large abdominal incisions and, you know, you're seeing them three, six months post-op and they just look very hunched, very guarded, um, sort of in that flex protective position that too can also influence bowel function as well. So that can be another indication, um, to send to PT because we can work on some of that scar. Um, mobility, we can work on posture and just getting them in that better place. So that way um, they are able to have better functional mobility, better um, ability to defecate. And then of course, on the topic of today with any sexual dysfunction, that can be an auto, almost an automatic referral to pelvic floor therapy. But what I was going to mention with what Elise had been, had been saying is it's almost critical to have these patients who have the sexual dysfunction to also be seeing some form of a therapist as well, whether it's a sex therapist specifically, or even just a few sessions because of all those psychosocial factors. And there's so much that's involved going on that sometimes, yes, we can address the muscular aspect, but if there's that underlying anxiety, if there's that underlying depression um, and fear that's not being addressed or not being acknowledged, those muscles go right back to being tight again. So it's sort of like, well, we're just like going in circles here, not really resolving things. So that's where it's really important to have this uh, multidisciplinary approach.
0: That's really terrific. Uh, So many important points that you made. Uh, On the medical side, for me, when I'm taking care of IBD, when the symptoms and the amount of inflammation don't align, in other words, there's less or no inflammation and the patient's continuing to have problems. I'm always wondering about uh, additional pelvic floor challenges that we should be evaluating further. This is especially true before people have colectomy and get a J pouch. Uh, I think we need to be thinking about this and keeping this in mind. Um, I have two more questions for you, but I want to remind everyone that this is IBD Drive Time. It's sponsored by the Gastroenterology Learning Network and advances in IBD. You can now find these podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Just search for the Gastroenterology Learning Network to find this and many other helpful podcasts with our expert colleagues. So just a couple more questions for you both. Um, Elise, what resources are available for patients and for providers to learn more about this?
1: So I'd say, especially for patients, um, uh, don't overlook the obvious, uh, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation has some incredible resources on a number of topics, um, and they have a special area of their website that is dedicated to sexual health. Um, I can include a link link on that as well, but they have some really nice patient-facing resources on there, um, as well as some um, one-page tip sheets um, that could even be kept in your clinic. Um, And then I would say for both uh, patients and providers, I would recommend the website ASECT.org, which I'll include as well, but it's A-A-S-E-C-T.org. That is actually the official organization for sex therapy. Um, They have, again, some very nice patient-facing resources on there. What I think I'd really like people to take away is that they have a directory for certified sex therapists. As many of you listening may know, it is quite hard to find a gastropsychologist. Thankfully, sex therapists are not as difficult to find. There are actually a lot of uh, people with very good sex therapy training um, across the country and internationally. So this is a directory that providers um, could use um, and patients can use to find a sex therapist in their area. They may not have uh, experience Um, in IBD, or they might, um, but either way, they are going to have some helpful strategies um, for your patients. Um, And then I also just wanted to make a note that for providers that may be interested in learning more about sexual health and about the care of patients with sexual uh, dysfunction, they have some really nice trainings that are listed on there as well. It talks about different pathways if you're interested in um, learning more about how to be a competent sexual health provider. And so I'd recommend taking a look at that as well.
0: That's great. Well, my final question is just, what's the next steps for the field? Uh, Certainly having this conversation is helpful, and uh, we've done some work to identify the prevalence of these problems, but what do you think are the important next steps for research and for clinical practice that we should be thinking about? And maybe I'll start with Sarah, and Elise, you can weigh in on this, and then we'll wrap. I think, first and
2: foremost, um, just almost making this routine for in terms of the clinical field, um, just making this a routine screening question and making this just part of the conversation of not that it's to be expected, but to some degree, it's kind of to be expected given the prevalence. Um, So being able to like have those conversations a lot easier with our patients, um, I think is definitely the biggest clinical aspect that needs to become more normalized.
0: Terrific. And Elise, what do you think we should be doing next?
1: I totally agree with Sarah. I think just getting more comfortable with talking about this, more routine with talking about this. Um, I think that what would be great to understand um, better is how we can make uh, these types of treatments more accessible to our patients with IBD. I think right now, you know, just anecdotally, I think we have good reason to think that the existing treatments are effective. Sex therapy is effective. Public or physical therapy is effective. We have some nice medications on the market, at least for men, Um, but this is all very piecemeal right now. Um, So I think uh, being able to actually um, do some research and to aim for really having more of a a clinical workflow um, in place uh, to make this more streamlined, both for gastroenterologists to know what steps to take next um, and for patients to have more of a comprehensive plan for how they might um, address what is a very multifactorial problem.
0: Yeah, totally agree, and I'm sure everyone listening is jealous that I get to work with such amazing expert uh, colleagues from these different disciplines here at the University of Chicago, but the resources you've provided are super helpful, uh, and we'll make sure those are linked underneath the podcast, and I certainly have an interest in understanding a bit more about how chronic inflammation may affect sexual function, um, and we are interested in learning how therapies may modify that as well. But this has been incredibly educational. I learned a ton from you both. I want to thank Dr. Elise Bedell, who is a gastropsychologist, sex therapist, and assistant professor at the University of Chicago, and Dr. Sarah McEarig, who is a pelvic floor physical therapist and has her clinical doctorate in physical therapy at the University of Chicago. Uh, This has been a terrific IBD drive time. And I hope that all the listeners will go see their next patients with IBD and think to ask about sexual function. Take care.